Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with a look at pre-discotheque history of the DJ on the radio and in the clubs. They'll be talking about the infamous Jimmy Seville, the first person ever known to charge admission to a club to hear records rather than a live band, as well as pioneering radio DJs like Alan Freed, the father of rock and roll. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're continuing what we're calling the let it roll. What, what were you calling it, Steph? The techno cast? The techno roll. The, te- the techno roll, yes. We're calling this the techno roll. It's a special mini series all about the history of DJing and disco based on the book. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And as always, my co-host, Ryan Harkness. Ryan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's a treat. And so we're going to cover two chapters today. This is kind of the prehistory section before they get into their narrative, their formal narrative. And there's two chapters. One is on the beginnings of the DJ on radio, which is where the disc jockey term was invented. So you got to talk about that. It's also the first place that voice and record playing was combined, although it was to an audience over the airwaves rather than a live audience at a club. And then they talk about there's a whole chapter on the beginning of club DJing, which, and this is something I didn't know until I read this book 20 years ago, that there was, we know exactly when the first time somebody charged money to listen to somebody else play records in a club and dance to it. So we'll get to all that. But first, general thoughts, Ryan. Uh, just, uh, it, it, it's an interesting period. Um, 
because it basically is is kind of technology driven, right? You've got uh, you've got the radio coming in and becoming a thing, and 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 all of a sudden people being able to listen to music uh, in, in a way that's that that's not live, and then uh, it evolves forward once they once they start mass marketing uh, records, and once they start mass marketing transistors, and then DJing really only kind of starts to happen once they figure out how to uh, amplify that music. They have Jimmy Savile who will be talking about. Uh, warts and all obviously uh discussing how uh things really kicked off for him because he was able to uh figure out a way to to play music louder and uh having sound systems melt on him and stuff like that so it's uh to me it, it's really the technology that comes up and obviously i'm the 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 electronic music expert uh for for the techno role um and this is this is pre that so i'm i'm excited to hear uh your take on a lot of this stuff because i know that you are you you know pretty much the a to z of every Everything going on with the evolution of rock and roll, which which also was driven by radio too. So I'm excited uh, to, to to put in some of the, the the technological aspect of the techno portion of of all of this, but also to hear a lot of this rock and roll evolution that went on. Cool. And I wouldn't call myself an expert at anything, but yeah, we have talked about a lot of this stuff on the show. And it's important to remember records preceded radio. They were both, I think records were, the first recorded sound was invented uh, about 10 years before radio, but it, both of them take a while to get commercial and to get commercial with music. So the first radio broadcast, they, they, they drill down to this too. It's, it's long been thought that Lee DeForest, who called himself the father of radio, was the first person to play music. He played the William Tell Overture over the airwaves in 1907. But according to this book, it was actually Canadian Reginald A. Fessenden on Christmas Eve 1906, who uh, played the first broadcast mixing Talking and himself on the violin. Oh, and to correct, Lee DeForest actually played uh, a recorded recorded William Tell Overture. It wasn't him playing it. And then they got through a number of these kind of early pioneers. And, and Fassenden was interesting because he was working for, I think, the United Fruit Company or something. And he had a whole bunch of ships that were his audience. And, and he sort of commandeered the radio network to to play some music. But there were there's a whole decade of, in the teens when the radio was dominated by hobbyists. And it was, it was a lot like the Internet in the late 80s or early 90s before the World Wide Web. I mean, you had to have a crystal set and a headset and, uh, you know, very much a, a self-selected coterie of nerds out there listening to the radio. But you had people like Dr. Elman B. Myers and his wife, Sybil, later Sybil True, who uh, did the first local broadcast in 1911 in New York. They would broadcast up to 18 hours a day, mostly playing records. So from the very get-go, radio and records, it was just too convenient. I mean, you can either play music yourself in front of a microphone hooked up to a transmitter, bring in a band or some other kind of performing group to play in front of your microphone and your transmitter, or you can just throw on records. And so that was a very natural uh, marriage of two technologies. That, and you gotta, you gotta give a shout out to Sybil True for being the the first uh, woman DJ uh, in the world. You know, broadcasting uh, broadcasting all that music. So so she she was the one that pushed uh, the music aspect of it, and she was the one that was actually uh, making it a point to to play music for young people and going down to the store and buying those records and 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 and, and basically being the first one to push. Uh, record uh, playing music as a promotion of music and uh, taking pride in the fact that after she would play music on 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 her program that sales in those records would go up so she uh, to, to me she's like one of those pioneers and definitely deserves a big shout out absolutely absolutely and it's important to note that immediately there's a, a connection between radio and sales sales of music in particular although it would take a long time for people to get that through their heads but by the early 1920s you get the first commercial stations. You got Detroit's AMK, which later became WWJ, Pittsburgh's KDKA. Uh, and only in America were radio stations allowed to just go for it and be commercial entities and you know do what thou wilt as long as you make money was the, the command. Whereas in countries like England and most everywhere else in the world, governments saw this mostly as a thing to be controlled and a way to, to educate and disseminate information and propaganda to their uh, citizens, but not necessarily something they just wanted to let citizens go wild with. And, and it, that 
difference is going to stay throughout this history and it's going to impact the history in, the, in terms of the difference in club culture in the UK and in the US because the UK is always going to be starved for new music on the radio or at least until very recently. And so then the next big development in radio and like I alluded to there's massive legal battles. First the musicians union is against it. They want they see radio especially records played over the radio as competition to musicians and remember at the turn of the century, there would be a second rush hour in every major city in the U.S. in the early evening when buses and trains would be full of people carrying violin cases and saxophone cases and drum kits to the dance halls that they were going to play. Because if you wanted to hear music, if you wanted to dance, you had to have a band. You had to pay musicians. And so that's that's really – you know, we talk about the disruption in the in the end of the 20th century to music and all the musical careers that were damaged, you know, when we started stealing MP3s instead of buying CDs. But the real carnage to music as a vocation happened at the beginning of the 20th century when the double whammy of records and radio came in and just devastate live music as an occupation. But they do get over their hurdles with the musicians' union, and then it's music publishers who don't want their songs played. And you got to keep in mind, song publishing was the heart of the music business in the 19th century and the first quarter of the 20th century. I mean, Stephen Foster, dying in poverty, created this legal regime where songwriting – and to this day, song publishing is still the most lucrative aspect of the music business. And so the music publishers had to you know, get their – drop of blood and work out how they were going to get paid by music being played over the radio. And then the record labels are filing suit because they felt that if people could hear it for free, they wouldn't buy it, which is exactly backwards as Civil True discovered early on. And as we've known ever since, soon record labels would be paying DJs to play their records, but uh, they had to <laughs> you know, go through the courtrooms and everything. Any thoughts on all that and the resistance to, to radio from all these powerful entities? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's the standard story of, of the music industry over and over again is uh, them being against something that ends up uh, saving saving the industry or making the industry bigger. And, uh, you know, you, you could argue that there was a, there was a bloodbath going from from uh, bands playing playing live uh, versus uh, recorded music being played and bands being replaced. There's no doubt that, uh, that it decimated the, uh, the number of bands that were going to be, we're going to be playing out. I imagine the numbers went down hugely, but the big issue as always, even up to today is more along the lines of how the music all, how the money ends up being distributed in the end. Every time there's a switch, it kind of uh, shuffles, shuffles the deck and, and, you know, someone, someone in the pile ends up getting all of the money and then it's a big fight to see whether or not that money will be distributed equally. And it never is. It always ends up going to uh, one player or another, like everything that was going on back in these, uh, you know, in, in, in the, in the thirties and forties, after 20 years of, of there being absolutely no music on the radio, as soon as it turns into a big business, obviously you have uh big record label uh, organizations coming in and fighting over all of the proceeds. And uh, one thing that I've always noticed is uh, it's, and it's the same, same today as it probably was back then is that these organizations wouldn't be distributing this money evenly between all of the people. It's just basically them coming in and getting to be the guys that get to sit on on that spigot you know and get and get what comes out of the uh get what comes out of the faucet and it's uh, it's a fight fight for that over and over and over again and it's no surprise that the musicians at the end of the day aren't uh, aren't the ones making the monies it's the record labels that own the contracts that get to you know uh make their money off of uh the deals that they've made with these musicians and record labels and to be clear Music was being played on the radio the whole time, including recorded music. Um, it just was facing legal, legal hurdles. But this was too big a monster for anybody to stop. And let's hear a little bit. This is a snippet of a 1920s radio broadcast from September 11th, 1928. I don't know what radio station. I think it was New York. I believe this was broadcasted and not just recorded as a simulation. But anyway, this should give you the feel for uh, an early DJ playing records over the radio in the 1920s. Heaven's sake, Jack, take that chip off your shoulder. Oh, Harry, give us a nice, lively number and see if we can tap this poor boy up a little.
taste of the kind of frolicsome fun DJs were having playing records over the radio in the early days of the industry. And yeah, it's just a free for all. There are many, many, many radio stations and many musical stars that we know from the 30s, 40s and 50s started out playing live at radio stations. So it was a mix of live performers in the studio. Sometimes they would go and do remotes and dance halls and uh, frequently they would just play records. So, so it was a, you know, exciting period when nobody knew exactly how this technology was going to work, but they sure did have a lot of fun figuring it out. And the big breakthrough in radio becoming what we know it now, where it's a DJ introducing records and no live performances, no musicians in the studio, is the make-believe ballroom. And a guy named Martin Block at WNEW in New York and starting in 1934 made himself massively rich, um, strictly talking some talk and playing some records. And and the concept is from the make-believe ballroom that, you know, he's imagining that he's in a ballroom with all the leading swing bands of the day. And, and you can pretend that you're out dancing to Paul Whiteman or Lawrence Welk or whoever, you know, fantasy band you can't get out to see, but you'd like to be dancing to. And, and he actually swiped the idea from a Canadian named Al Jarvis, who was doing it in KFWB in Hollywood. And Jarvis, I'm, I'm starting to see a theme here of Canadians, like of Americans trying to steal this Canadian valor here, because obviously there's Lee DeForest, the father of the radio, trying to steal from Canadian Reginald Fessenden. And then you've got uh, Martin Block stealing from Al Jarvis. So uh, and wasn't it only recently that, that people started to, you know, accepting the fact that basketball was uh, Canadian as well? I just feel what? like there's a lot of there's a lot of Canadian uh, people getting screwed over in the history books here. And it's just going to point out. Uh, well, not just just to say you're welcome as a yes. Canadian to to all, all the international listeners out there. You're welcome. <laughs> and I hope you're not spreading fake news about that basketball thing. I'm going to have no, to. No, no, it's very trust. That. Trust me. In Canada, the nonstop commercials growing up where, where they have heritage moments where they talk about important moments in Canadian history and they have a very stodgy commercial about about the the the, the white guy who invented basketball and it looked very lame but at the time, but it definitely was basketball. We'll just have to treat that as unconfirmed reports from the wilderness. But uh, <laughs> as soon as we can uh, send an explorer out there to document that uh, in print and English, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you on that. And so another big phenomenon that happens through radio is it becomes an opportunity for African-Americans uh, to spread black culture uh, to white audiences that is pretty unprecedented. I mean, there are lots of people who, you know, historically, white Americans have always been drawn to the music of, of African-Americans, you know, whether it's standing on the plantation the porch, the porch of the big house on the plantation and listening to what's going on, uh, at, you know, down in the slave cabins or listening to the field haulers. And, and it's a long documented thing that white people have always, I mean, you know, Africa is the motherland of human beings and just a mecca for musical creation. And, and when the slaves were brought over, they brought their music with them. But radio was one of the first times that white Americans could just discreetly open up their homes and have black musicians singing and playing and talking. And so the whole jive African-American dialect comes into a white American homes for the first time. And being the racist monstrosity that American culture is, you know, you get you get triumphs like Jack Cooper at WSBC. Uh, started in 1929 in Chicago with the All Negro Hour. He's the pioneer. And then a guy named Al Benson, a.k.a. the old swingmaster, who's just the absolute godfather. And he's one of the first people who figured out, hey, I'll buy time from the station, sell it to sponsors, and I'm going to get rich. And he did. So it's, it's, it's a big success for some people, but other people, like, uh, you know, they tell a particularly aggravating story about a guy in New Orleans, Vernon Winslow, who was of light complexion and he interviewed for a job with the New Orleans uh, radio station. And they, and at the end of the interview, they're like, well, that all sounds great, but are you a N word? And then he says, yes. And they, so they won't let him be on the air, but they hire him to train white DJs to play this character they call Papa Sapa. And, and Winslow has to teach them the lingo and the dialect. And this is, you know, it's also the rhyming culture that later we're going to get, that's going to be immortalized and commercialized as rap and hip hop, but it's been part of African-American culture from the beginning. And this is how it gets disseminated. But, Oh my God, how humiliating and infuriating 
that must have been for him. And, and uh, you know, Nelson George, the great uh, music writer, calls this broadcast blackface. And it, and it becomes a big trend. And, and it's not always going to be as crass as that. Like there's people like Dewey Phillips in Memphis and Alan Freed in Cleveland who are genuine supporters of African-American culture. And then there's people like Dick Clark that are basically exploiters of African-American culture. But both types are going to be on the radio. And Dick Clark obviously didn't do the broadcast blackface. That guy was as white as it came, and he kept it that way. But other people like Wolfman Jack and others would do these performances very heavily based on what they were hearing from the black community repurposed as white. Thoughts on that? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you, you can go back. Uh, one of the cool things about researching this book again uh, now after, you know, uh, reading it uh, when it when it came out was that there's a lot more. The, the, the Internet is much more well formed and there's a lot more uh, uh, archival information available, especially through YouTube. You can hear Al Benson's old shows. Uh, uh, he's, he's the old swing master. He's considered the godfather. Uh, he's the guy who who basically allowed black people to speak like black people on the radio and you can actually go out and you can you can hear some of his uh his old broadcasts and 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 kind of what what they were going for and you can imagine how uh how different that is uh, compared to uh, the old timey radio voice that uh, people were used to hearing, which, you know, uh, obviously has been codified into, uh, in, into us, into a stereotype now. And it's as real as it was back then that, that old timey radio voice and uh, that broadcast blackface was, was another extension of that. You don't hear it as much now, obviously uh, because it's kind of, put put away now that we realize how offensive it is but uh broadcast blackface was uh w- was something that they were doing that was on par with the uh, you know the uh, the official old-timey radio voice so it, it became kind of a another a, another style of of broadcasting and then obviously dick clark who 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 did the completely white version of it all uh the uh, the the acceptable to whites version of uh rock and roll radio and let's hear a little bit of um, the old swing master. This is Al Benson broadcasting, and Ryan's going to have to tell me what exactly. I was going to play some Dewey Phillips, but I think I think we should should play some Al Benson. So, do you have a specific one in mind, or we're just going to fill in the blanks? Yeah, I got I got a YouTube video I can send you. All right, cool. So so I don't know what we're going to hear, but this is Al Benson, the old swing master, the godfather of black radio. you can hear people say drink Canadian Ace. There are 6,999 drops of golden goodness in every bottle. Say, if you haven't tried Canadian Ace, do it today. Get a bottle of cold, delicious, refreshing Canadian Ace beer. And that was Al Benson, the old swing master from Chicago, pioneering black radio uh, over the airwaves in America. And this has massive cultural impact. Alan Freed in particular. I mean, Dewey Phillips has a big impact nationally because... He, with his Red Hot and Blues show in Memphis and his crazy lingo, really integrates Memphis, which, you know, you, you hear about Elvis, you hear about Stax Records in the 60s, and you just assume that Memphis maybe was more enlightened than the rest of the South. Actually, it might have been less enlightened than the rest of the South. It was just sort of a unique thing that certain individuals had a great, great black music scene and then a lot of hip white people like Dewey Phillips and Elvis Presley and Sam Phillips of Sun Records who listened with their ears open and helped promote that music and then emulated that music in the case of Elvis and Alan Freed up in Cleveland is doing something similar he originally called it Moondog Music starts uh, talking jive and playing black records uh, over playing R&B rhythm and blues over the radio and starts promoting concerts and they're massive massive successes in cleveland he mostly had a black audience but you know the first time he does a concert that he's promoted over the radio something like ten thousand kids show up and it's declared a riot but it's also big money and freed eventually goes to new york where he becomes the number one dj in the market and popularizes has to change the name of moondog music to rock and roll and it's essentially the same thing as rhythm and blues which is a style that came out of jazz in the late 40s and a a function of rhythm and blues is more black pop music than a distinctive style. There's all kinds of subgenres in R&B from the very beginning. 
Yeah, it's pretty messed up. There's a there's a, a section in the book that talks about how Billboard magazine or uh, in, in 1942, they, they called their the black hits chart, the Harlem hit parade. And then they just changed it to race records, which is, I, I guess, like, you know, you're just going to you can just strip uh, any any kind of uh, nice veneer off of it and just call it race records. And then they they renamed that to the uh, rhythm and blues R&B. And, and growing up, I remember being a bit confused how the R&B charts always just happened to be all black artists, even though the music that they, you know, would be played, it was pretty, pretty varied and, and, and wide. And it's, to me, it's, it's wild to find out that rhythm and blues, like the label comes uh, as an immediate aftermath from billboard, from just being known as the race records chart. And uh, it's, it's wild to me that, that it's still such a catch all for black music. And we're still having discussions when, when billboard puts something like old town, old, old, uh, old country road into uh, the rhythm and blues section instead of the, the country section, because you know why. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing. And, and, one of the things that sort of surprised me from studying this period is the 50s was actually a much more musically integrated era than the 70s when I grew up. Like the the color lines are being smashed by people like Alan Freed and Elvis and also people like B.B. King, who was a DJ before he was a performer, you know, and, and Muddy Waters and, and Louis Jordan and so many that and Chuck Berry. So it's, it's this coalition of African-Americans and, and white white Americans that come together to promote this music and and bring it massive change in the 50s but it also triggers a massive backlash and alan freed is basically hounded to his death um because of accusations of payola which hadn't even been illegal when he started doing it which is just the practice of record labels paying people like alan freed to play records sometimes it would be pretty shady like alan freed uh, was credited as a co-writer on some of chuck berry's early records which Chuck Berry had never met the man, but it was the trade-off that Chess Brothers made at Chess Records to get a uh, guarantee radio play for Alan Freed. If every time that record got played, Alan Freed got some money, well, that's a heck of an incentive for Alan Freed to break Chuck Berry big to a national audience, and he did. Chuck Berry's one of the first African-American performers to have massive uh, pop hits in his own right. Louis Jordan had done it in the 40s, but Chuck Berry's openly an avowed part of this new revolution called rock and roll. And anyway, there's congressional hearings and, and full on panic. And it's very telling that Dick Clark comes through clean as a whistle and, and bigger than ever before after these hearings, even though it's revealed he's got his hand in every kind of pie. He's stealing, he's taking publishing credit for songs he didn't write. He's co-owning record companies that whose records he plays on the radio, just as dirty as the day is long. But he comes to the hearings just fine because fundamentally Dick Clark was about squeaky clean, wholesome white entertainment and was a big part of the backlash that kind of killed rock and roll in the late 50s, whereas Alan Freed was about rock and roll all the way. Sure, he took money to play records, but he played records that were hot because he had to keep his audience. So if your record sucked, you could pay him if you wanted to, but he wasn't going to play it that much. But anyway, Alan Freed goes down in flames and uh, you know, rock and roll takes a big, big step backward. But you know, as is so often the case, there's there's some new developments that come along under. And so let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about the second chapter of the book we're going to discuss in this episode, which is about the early club DJs. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. All right, so we've covered the genesis of the disc jockey, although we didn't get into the genesis of the name, um, Jack Knapp. A record exec uh, is credited with coining that um, term, but now we're going to talk about club DJs. And the first club DJ was a guy who was celebrated and lionized all the way up to his death in 2011. And I'm talking about Jimmy Savile, uh, who, according to this book, and this is the history as written, in 1943 in the industrial northern city of Leeds, England, he was the first person to ever charge admission to. Uh, 
here at DJ Play Records. So, Ryan, you talked a little bit about the tech. Tell us a little bit about your understanding of what was it that Jimmy Savile had technically that nobody else had at the time that allowed him to do this. Uh, well, basically, just uh, uh, there, the the ability for him to uh, to connect a uh, a record player to an amplifier. So, and they were they were doing it very ad hoc. They were they were literally just running copper wires, uh, and they were they were sticking uh, the the actual specifics of the technicalities to it. I'm not a hundred percent sure of, but uh, the story goes that he melted more than a couple of sound systems and a couple of uh, of record players and and set fire to to several tables that the the, the equipment was sitting on uh, during the early days when they were still working out the the, the technology to basically get. Uh, so that the records could be played loud enough so that it wasn't just, you know, like a tinny sound coming out of a, out of a, out of, out of one of those big horns, you know? Yeah. And they, they had electric speakers by this point, but they weren't loud enough to rock a whole room full of people. Like it was perfectly fine if it's you and your dad dancing to, to records in your living room. But if you want to get a bigger room and charge a mission for couples to dance, you're going to have to have a sound system. And yeah, melted his mom's grand. Uh, top of the, his mom's grand piano and and she had to come in and play the piano after a system melted but eventually it does become a, a thing like right away it's profitable um and the the book's very interesting because it, the first edition was clearly written before savile's death and disgrace and this is a guy who was knighted like sir jimmy savile of england like the, the queen tapped him on the shoulders with swords all the way up through the 60s, he becomes a host of TV's Top of the Pops. He's uh, got a sort of early reality TV show all through the, the 70s and 80s, and uh, in which he would help, it was sort of like a Make-A-Wish type show, where, especially for children, where he would help people achieve their dreams. He's just this beloved figure in England all the way through the end of the 20th century. Then he dies, and it's revealed posthumously that he's like the king of the sex creeps. And all these kind of conspiracy theories about groups of elites uh, molesting children that I've been hearing since the 90s. There was an Access TV show here in Austin where somebody had this wild conspiracy theory linking President G.H. H.W. Bush to Boxcar Willie, the pretty obscure country singer, as these heads of this pedophile cabal. And I used to really think that was hilarious, but – when Jimmy Savile is exposed, it turns out he was doing that kind of thing with members of the House of Lords and uh, other rock, you know, rock stars. Gary Glitter notoriously has done a lot of prison time for this. Many other rock stars are on the record as having had sex with underage kids, although in the 60s and 70s, for whatever reason, that was seen as like a speeding ticket type offense rather than the way it's seen now as this heinous act, uh, which I agree it is. Um, it's just, really hard to under understate like the 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 level of fame that uh, Jimmy Savile had in, in the UK. We don't know as much about uh, him here in Canada and, and in, in America, but uh, the guy was basically like in, in his children's presenters' days, basically like the Mister Dress Up of uh, of the UK. And 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 yeah, like the he's like Epstein in that. His his little black book, his connections, the people that he was associated with, uh, it's 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 an endless book, and uh, to a certain degree, like you can you can tie a lot of uh, that that early UK uh, rock. Uh, the same way that Jerry Lee Lewis and all of them were, were connected to, to to sleeping with underage girls and everything else like that, you could you could just like you can bring back the beginning of, of DJing to Jimmy Seville. A lot of a lot of that early underage scum stuff that was going on, Jimmy Seville's fingerprints are all over it. So it's really messed up to to imagine that the impact that this guy had on on history and just just how integrated he was, not just into the rock scene, but into the generalized society uh, and and into the upper class and into the, the ruling class of the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to do a whole episode on him uh, at some point. But for our purposes, I mean, the the point of it is that he creates this tradition in England and establishes England as one of the as the world pioneer in discos. Now the name comes from Paris after World War II. Um, they weren't calling it discos yet. And what he was doing, he wasn't mixing records or they didn't have the disco ball or the light shows, anything like that. But what they had was 
a situation where people were paying money to hear music and it wasn't a live band. It was records and Savile to get around troubles with the musicians union, which was very strong in England at the time. He would just hire a band to not play and, you know, problem solved. And by the late fifties, he had a whole chain of something like 70 DJs working for him. Um, and, 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 you know, is a big, big player. Like his influence on pop culture and, and music can't be understated. And, you know, we just can't get away from the fact he was also a horrible, horrible, aberrant person. But the next uh, topic that they switch to is kind of a jump back because then they talk about the jukebox, which is a machine that you can put like 20, 50 records in. People drop a quarter or a dime in the slot, pick what record they want to hear and play it. So it was perfect for small clubs who couldn't afford a, a band or weren't even really a club. And the term juke is uh, a Gullah term, which is the coastal African-Americans in South Carolina. And, and it basically means sex. It also means to trick or dece deceive someone. So if you juke somebody on the football field or the basketball court, you make a move that um, kind of leaves them in their shoes as you go past, past them to the basket or the goal line. So jukebox is originally kind of an ugly term people didn't want to use, but it becomes a dominant term. And I love it. It's, it's great. It's kind of like how disc jockey became somehow like it just ended up being what was the accepted world but jukebox is even better because people actively tried to to squash it but it will always be the jukebox and uh it was it was quite a filthy term i love I, I love that i love the association and uh the forbiddenness of it and i love how how that term won out in the end Absolutely. And and it was invented in 1889 and took a while to really take off. But by the early 30s, it's literally the savior of the record industry. The record industry hits this massive peak in around 1920 of selling hundreds of millions of records a year. And in the 30s, it has with the Great Depression after 1929, it dives off the table. I mean, it, they down to like two or three million records a year. And jukeboxes in very large part carried the record industry through the 30s because people who couldn't afford radios could afford to go to a club and this was particularly the case in the south among poor african americans they had what they called juke joints which was basically just a, a shanty with a makeshift bar a couple tables and chairs and a jukebox and you might have somebody like robert johnson drop in and play acoustic guitar but most nights you're going to have a jukebox and people dancing and it also created a window for what we know as the infamous dirty blues record, you know, um, Shave It Clean and Poontang Blues and songs like this that would never have been played in the radio, that would never have been advertised in mainstream uh, publications. You could have a funky down-home bar and put that shit on the, on the jukebox and boom, people would pay money to play it. And, and it's sort of a precursor of the sound scan revolution in the 90s where they started doing the record charts based on actual record sales as tracked digitally rather than you know self-reporting and all the kind of manipulated ways that record charts have been done previously. So it's kind of a, a great form of democratizing music. And then from there, they talk about sock hops, which is uh, a type of dance that was popular in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And it's called a sock hop because it would usually be in a high school gymnasium. So you had to take your shoes off so you wouldn't ruin the pre precious basketball court uh, with your with your clunky heels and you'd dance in your socks. And they'd have kids playing records there, sometimes bands, but generally records. And then, and then they take a really interesting swing into wartime Paris. Um, and let's hear uh, – actually, we'll, we'll jump ahead of our story a little bit to hear the next record, which is – what I was teasing with Alan Freepart, and this is Hank Ballard and the Midnighters with the twist. Come on, baby. Midnighter's original version of the twist from 1959 and this is a record that had a really slow start it was a it was an R&B hit when it was released based on a dance that Hank Ballard saw being done in Baltimore but it's not until Dick Clark gets a hold of it has it recut by a performer under his control named Chubby Checker that it becomes a, a big number one hit but even then it's not until a year later when it's picked up uh, at a club in 
New York City, the Peppermint Lounge, that it becomes an international phenomenon. And you get people like Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys are dancing the twist. And the book goes in quite a bit to what a revolutionary dance the twist is. But let's go back a little bit and talk about the invention of the disco uh, in underground Paris. And and it's anti-Nazis that tick, tick this off. I mean, that, that jazz had been patronized in Paris from the 20s on, and many African-American performers, Josephine Baker and others, found it much more amenable to be black in Paris than to be black in the United States. And, and when the Nazis take over, that takes a dramatic turn for the worst, and the, the music is literally driven underground, and basement cellar clubs open up and and start playing records to, for people to dance to. There's also a Swing Kids scene in Hamburg where anti-Nazi activists are, are dancing to swing music and organizing. But do you remember the Zazus, Ryan? Can you tell us about them? Uh, just just kind of like, uh, I, I just like the fact that they had their own da- uh, dressing style, uh, very, very distinctive, and uh, and, and their little calling cards and their, their little... Uh, a lot of affectations and it was uh to me it was like one of the first kind of music scenes that i know about i'm sure that there's many many beforehand but uh the zazus were pretty cool i like them better than the mods they seem like they had a little bit more flair and as french typically do a bit more joie de vivre <laughs> exactly and so what they were was a bunch of young people who liked swing music didn't like nazis and had a really elaborate dress code and lingo uh, for this music that they're picking up across the ocean. You know, this is a, this is secondhand stuff they're getting intercontinentally via records. You know, you had some performers in the 20s and 30s that were coming over and bringing it to them, but in the 40s during World War II, they had to go with records, and that was probably quite a challenge just to get the records. You know, swing records become uh, contraband, something that has to be smuggled in under the Nazis, and then when the war ends, the first discotheque called the discotheque emerged. I think that they say it was Marseille, where originally the term just meant library of records and sailors who would buy records would leave them at a club so they could hear them when they came back because uh, you couldn't play records on ship, I guess. And and so, you know, you had a discotheque, which was a library of discs, disc records, bibliotheque being the French for, for book library. And so it quickly comes to Paris, though, a club called the Whiskey A Go-Go, founded by a guy named Paul Puccini. Uh, and very soon, you know, other places like Chez Castel are opening up. And, um, and pretty soon you've got what you would recognize today as a disco. The glitter balls are there. They've got bars. They've got double turntables, which I think Jimmy Savile also had started messing with in England um, very soon after this. But it's interesting that, you know, we've got discos, discotheque, and this this Parisian influence. And it's something – it's interesting because France has always been way behind the curve on rock and roll. And it, it's only recently that we've begun to appreciate in America – with things like the Yaya Girls um, and the kind of rock and roll that they were enjoying, Serge Gainsbourg and others have had had sort of revivals in America in the last couple of decades. But historically, French rock was just seen as hopeless. And it's interesting to me that from the beginning, they're on the cutting edge of disco. And this will stay true all the way with EDM. I mean, it's it's a French group, Daft Punk, who did as much as anyone to popularize EDM in the U.S. in the 2000s. So. I don't know. This is the kind of stuff I love about music history. When you see these threads coming and connecting from story to story, and it's always outsiders and it's always uh, cultural oddballs and and minority groups that that have the hottest music. And in London, that's the case as well. You've got a mix of Parisians, uh, French people in London, and also West African, West Indian immigrants, people from former British colonies like the Bermudas and Jamaica who are in London and don't realize you're supposed to shut down. If you've ever been to London, it's infamous how early they go to bed. The subway stopped working early. Back in the day, the TV channels would go off early. There were no all-night diners. Um, you know, the British like to have their tea and go to bed early, apparently, but the West Indians didn't get the memo. And so they like to form little underground clubs and play records in basements and, and stay up late. It comes to New York and it's the French who bring it to New York again. And now we're caught up to the twist. Do you want to talk a little bit about the twist and why it's different than previous dance crazes? Oh, the cool thing about the twist uh, was that you could do it on your own, which apparently was a rarity back then. Uh, dancing was for couples, and if you were if you were single, you were kind of left out. And uh, I mean, there's 
I, like most dance crazes, I think, especially the ones back then, it was a, uh, a subtle uh, or, or a not so subtle uh, allusion to, to sex. Uh, and uh, everybody, it was a, it was a whole lot of shucking, jucking, and gyrating, and uh, of course, uh, it was scandalous to everybody who wasn't into it. So, I think that's that's kind of the, the the key thing was this was a dance for single people. It was a dance for young people who could go out and, and basically uh, swing their hips on the dance floor, uh, and, and actually have a name and a trend behind it, so that they weren't just seen as uh, you know in the throes of some kind of sex craze. Absolutely. And it talks about one of the early, uh, someone who's going to go on to be a DJ, but in, in England, he was, he first comes to attention as, uh, I think his name was Dexter. I just write it down in my notes, but he comes to attention first as, as somebody who can really do the twist well, but the, the initial media coverage is look at this savage freak, you know, acting out these, these sex acts, uh, on the dance floor. We do not like this, <laughs> but, but, but a year or two later when, you know, uh, princess Margaret and the Kennedys are doing the twist, suddenly he becomes a celebrity. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. One of the rare instances where it's it's always the bottom of the social hierarchy and the top of the social hierarchy that that drive these these kind of transgressive trends. And and the twist is easy to see as a corny dance today, but but I think they properly identify it as a really big deal and something that without the twist and the breakthrough, you would never have modern club culture and what we the kind of dancing we think of. Before this, you know, even sexually transgressive dances like the tango and others that were very African influenced and were an exciting new cultural development in in England and, and America, Anglo culture it still required women to be asked by a man to dance. A woman could not just get on the dance floor and start dancing and tell the twist. And so this is a absolutely revolutionary thing. And then the book goes back to London. And this is something that has come up in our rock and roll history discussions over and over again. They, they had these noon clubs, the British, I guess it goes in line with going to bed early. They like to party at lunch. And so just like the Beatles at the cavern in Liverpool were rocking up, you know, secretaries and, and office boys were taking a lunch break and listening to the Beatles in London. They're going to the Lyceum and they're listening to records. In fact, that's where the Beatles let it love me do first breaks through uh, in London because of a, of a DJ there at a club and a kid named Ian Samwell, who sort of sets the tone for British DJs. He's big into R and B. He's got a lot of imported records. He's got records you cannot hear anywhere else. And that's the big difference between America, the American club scene and the British club scene. America, you had a lot of radio stations. You had a lot of record stores. Kids could hear a variety of music on the radio for free. You didn't have to go out to clubs to hear it. In England, if you wanted to hear R and B, or Bluebeat, which is the early form of ska precursor of reggae, you had to go to clubs. And so there was a big draw for that. And as they say, um, all the elements of the modern club where you've got fancy lighting, you've got records that are made to dance to, and DJ and a big dance floor, it all comes together there at the Lyceum. And this discos become a big part of swinging London. We think of swinging London as the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and all these live bands. And it still was a transitional period when a band like the Beatles could make a good living. I mean, these were guys who bought cars before they had a record deal just because they were selling that many tickets every night at the Cavern and other places in Liverpool and Manchester. You could make a living still as a dance band through the sixties, but, but there's, you know, two competing entities because the disco is now eating into that. And and clubs like the Adlib or the Scots of St. James, where guys like the Kinks and the Beatles and the Stones hung out after hours, they went to discos. They didn't go see live music. I mean, that was, I guess, for the hoi polloi to go see the Who or the Small Faces uh, at the Marquee or the 101 Club. But when the when the big stars wanted to party, they would go to smaller clubs that were more intimate and very exclusive. You couldn't get in and party with the Beatles if you were not somebody or beautiful or something. You know, you had to be rich or 
have something that would let the people at the door know to let you in. And, and one guy they talk about is Guy Stevens that they call the linen of club culture because he was a theoretician and he got what he was doing and he was the king of the crate diggers. You know, this is the guy who had the coolest records, the newest records. I mean, people like the who would go up to him and say, what song should we cover guy? Like, tell us. And he goes on to be a record producer for groups like Mott the Hoople produces uh, the clashes London con in the eighties. So, Right from the get-go, DJs are walking this line. It's a pretty, it's a pretty pervious line. It's easy to go from DJ to record producer right from the get-go. And there's a bit of a of a black hole when it comes to uh, a lot of these guys. Uh, when when you're trying to look them up and 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 hear, you know, what I would call as DJ sets, but you know, just like a track listing of the kinds of things that they're playing, because obviously of the, because of that that split between radio and club, and uh, you know, there's a lot of archival radio uh, recordings out there. But but everything that went on in these clubs, uh, it was you know, it, it's a lot more ethereal. Uh, you had to be there. I'm starting to find now some track listings and stuff like that. But even, even on places like Spotify where you'd normally find, uh, you know, some pretty good playlists and stuff like that. A lot of these guys, like Guy Stevens, um, it doesn't, doesn't exist, uh, online as far as being able to hear the kind of stuff that he was, he was doing. I'm, I'm just now starting to find, you know, you can find a list of, uh, of bands that he produced, uh, like, uh, but uh, there's there's not there's not a whole lot of, of of music to actually check out from 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 this period of time, uh, which which to me is really disappointing. And I'm going to try and dig a bit deeper. And if I have to, I'm going to make the damn playlist myself. Absolutely. And yeah, and, and it's a combination of the technology just wasn't there for uh, Easy Club recording and nobody really had thought to do it yet. Like it was it was being invented at the time and somebody like guy stevens is doing something that's totally new and it didn't occur to people to bring their reel-to-reel contraption down to the club which i'm sure would have prevented him from being let in in the first place so yeah it's it's kind of lost to history it's also interesting that this is where the split between radio djs and club djs comes in because john peel the absolutely legendary british radio dj who who introduced hundreds of new bands throughout the 60s 70s 80s um um, he failed as a club DJ. He wanted to come to, to London and play uh, psychedelic music from California, where he had been a DJ previously, and he did not like Sky and Bluebeat, and it just didn't work. The kids wanted to dance. John Peel wanted to blow minds, and you know that's that's where the bifurcation happens, and that's kind of the story we'll be following for the rest of this book. Is is disco and clubs playing records takes over from live musicians and so far as serving the audience for dance music if people want to go out and dance by the 70s they're going to a disco they're hearing records in a club generally if you want to see a live band you're there to listen it's more like a concert experience like seeing a beethoven symphony or something it's it's not even though it's sweaty and loud and and aggro in the case of led zeppelin or black sabbath it's still not something you're going to to dance so it's big split and right around this time there's another epic that happens, and, and this happens in New York at a club called Arthur, which is named for George Harrison's hairstyle in the movie Hard Day's Night. But uh, Sybil Burton, who was the ex-wife of Richard Burton, who he abandoned for Liz Taylor, she founds a club called Arthur, and a guy named Terry Knoll is the first guy to mix records, and that means you play in one record and you fade the sound and, and turn up the sound on the other turntable. And, and he's one of the people who figured out he could drop little snippets of the Hendrix record he was about to play or the Chambers Brothers record, which he was about to play. And let's hear one of Terry Knoll's favorite records. And this is the Chambers Brothers' Time Has Come Today.
Wales, Time Has Come Today by the Chambers Brothers. Not something you would think of as an antecedent to disco music. I mean, the Chambers Brothers were a folk act, African-American folk act, who became a rock band. And this is really their biggest hit by a wide margin. But it was an epic hit, and people loved to dance to it in the late 60s. And this is a whole period, and we'll talk about it some in a couple chapters. But there's a really fascinating period where rock music dominates the disco. Rock music is so dominant in the late 60s and 70s, and, and I'm including R&B uh, in that, under that greater umbrella of rock because R&B at that time was still bands in studios. Even somebody like James Brown, who's inventing funk or Sly and the Family Stone, really have more in common with a group like Led Zeppelin uh, than they do with what we think of disco 10 years later, where it's you know Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder and a bank of synthesizers. It's It's you know, a big thing. And we're going to be hearing about DJs rocking the house in discos to, to records like Iron Butterflies, Inigata De Vida, or Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. So when you think about early disco in this era, just remember, it's very much the rock era and rock rules everything in this period. So somebody like Terry Knoll, who's following the pop charts, but the pop charts are dominated by rock. So it's like a really fascinating period. Now that 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 Chamber Brothers track is like ten minutes long, and it starts out uh, pretty funk, and then it gets really psychedelic, and by the end uh, you can really hear, uh, you know, an early almost uh, disco influence uh, or or influence into disco, as far as I'm concerned. And the cool thing about Terry Noel that that uh, he's another guy that again, like uh, you you're looking up, you're trying to find other stuff because he he had the cha- this this time song by the Chambers Brothers as as his build up. This is the song that he would build up to all night and then he would drop that at the peak of the night and and when you hear him talk about that uh you you realize that this is a guy that isn't just playing track just playing tracks he's he's building something he's he's a dj that understands that you you build up you go down and you put on a show he had a a sound system that was designed to uh to pan around the uh the entire uh, club and uh he had uh he had a light rig set up that he could control himself so he was one of the first he was the first guy to put knobs on it uh which to me is like extremely important you know uh, very smart to have the two turntables sit next to each other so you can drop the needles back to back but putting a knob on it and then throwing and just you know bringing one track in and out this these are these are these are key seminal moments in uh, in dj concept you know like without uh, obviously someone had to do it first it just happened to have been him he was the guy that did it and he did it at these massive celebrity uh filled events one of the best stories that they have uh in the book as far as i'm concerned is a story about how john wayne came up to and, and asked for uh for a song and terry noel pulls out the records of texas (laughs) (laughs) yeah he pulls out the record and snaps it in half in front of uh, john wayne's face which apparently judy garland and lauren bacall saw and loved because they thought john wayne was an asshole so that's like this is the level at which uh already uh this guy was operating so to me it was studio 56 before studio 56 was a thing and you can only imagine uh what it must have been like uh in those early proto clubs having your mind blown by this guy who is doing stuff like throwing Jimi Hendrix into other songs and you know you recognize it but you don't know what the hell is going on yeah it's it's a crazy period and and I kind of got ahead of ourselves because there's another development before you get to the DJs playing heavy rock and that's San Francisco and the acid test and so there's this period that starts in the west coast but then there's ballrooms in London and Detroit uh, and even Texas where psychedelic bands are playing and and that comes into our story because it's it's dance music still the hippies dancing arrhythmically as they were <laughs> to the Grateful Dead and others uh influences disco culture in a big way but really it's where the light shows and psychedelics are combined for the first time and that's something that's going to be a theme all the way through the rest of this book um especially in the acid house era in the late 80s and early 90s where the, those threads really come together again but so and just the role that drugs plays in everything we, we kind of passed over that uh the first explicit mention of the role of drugs playing in uh, the role that drugs played in club culture came up with the mods back in uh, the very early uh, late 50s 
early 60s, the mods in the UK staying out from Friday to Monday on amphetamines. And, and now, obviously, San Francisco with, with their acid tests. This is, this is the point where... Uh, uh, you know, it, it wasn't drugs weren't just fueling uh, the music being created and the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but uh, everybody on the dance floor, it was fueling the dance floors and it was keeping the dance floor going well past uh, when uh, any uh, any reasonable person would quit. Absolutely. And, and and so as we go through this, we'll be talking about what kind of drugs the kids are on uh, in every scene or whether, you know, what drugs <laughs> an are important most question, an important question. <laughs> it is. It's still it's still a good question to ask whenever you see your fellow citizens behaving in a novel fashion. I wonder what drugs they're taking. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so that's that's basically the first two chapters. And, and it lays the groundwork for where we where we've been and sets the tone for where we're going. The next chapter is going to be about Northern Seoul, which is very much a UK phenomenon. And it's something I did not know about at all until I read this book in the late 90s and look forward to talking about it next week with you, Ryan. Yeah, me too. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to discuss Northern Soul, a uniquely British phenomenon that kept American soul music alive, brought DJs to a new prominence, and brought crate diggers to the forefront. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. <laughs>